0: Hello and welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about On Occult Philosophy by Cornelius Agrippa. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Anthony Grafton, a professor of history and the humanities at Princeton University. He's the author of many books, including Inky Fingers, The Making of Books in Early Modern Europe, Defenders of the Text, The Traditions of Scholarship in an Age of Science, and The Footnote. His latest book is Magus, The Art of Magic from Faustus to Agrippa from Harvard University Press. He joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station WRFH in Michigan. Tony, welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. Why is On Occult Philosophy by Cornelius Agrippa a great book?
1: Well... I mean, in one way, I probably shouldn't call it a great book. It is a book that had an immense appeal at the time it came out. It was printed over and over again, not just in big format editions, but in handy pocket ones. It was searched for by the Inquisition. You could get into trouble just for having a copy of it in uh, Italy, and parts of Italy and Spain. And it inspired a lot of artistic and literary work, uh, including, I think, at least in a general way, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. So it's a book that Seemed to embody a vast learned pursuit, the pursuit of magic. And that is obviously problematic. Uh, You know, it's always easy to be wise at the expense of the past. And obviously, there's a, a great deal of quite wild error mixed into this book. Yet at the same time, it was a book that presented a beautiful vision of the universe. It seemed to offer people tools for taking advantage of the occult forces of the universe, the forces of angels, the forces of planets, and it connected those with technology, as if the magic of the new technology of the Renaissance and the magic of Kabbalah were all somehow part of the same pursuit. Uh, Readers and uh, later intellectuals found this synthesis enormously satisfying. So, it's not a book that I'd want anyone to draw therapy from now, and it has a lot of therapies in it, uh, in, but in the same way perhaps as much of Freud's work, I think it's magnificent even though I don't think one should use it now as a guide to trying to make people who need help
0: better. We're going to talk about all of that, what this book is, what it says, who wrote it, its wild errors, where it fits into the history of science and technology, its connections to this amazing figure, Faust, and a lot more. Tony, let's begin with the author. And in your new book, Magus, The Art of Magic from Faustus to Agrippa, you write this about on occult philosophy, quote, Agrippa's book made bold claims for its originality and importance from the start, a title page adorned by a vivid portrait of the author, unquote. Today we have jacket photos on books, but in the 1530s, this book was published in 1533, was it unusual to have the author's woodcut portrait? It was. It had been not not uncommon in the age of
1: manuscripts because authors earned their livings by presenting uh, their books in handsome copies to patrons who gave them gifts or, or salaried positions. And it was, it was quite common in the 15th century to see the author on the front page sometimes offering the book to a pope or a bishop or a prince but in the early years of print there were no title pages um printers just dived right into the text And when they began doing title pages, they tended just to have the title, the author's name, maybe some information about printing. They had ornamentation. It was often, for example, a woodcut border, very decorative, but not necessarily connected with the text. Hans Holbein did these for printers in Basel, and they're really beautiful. uh, And other printers pirated them. Martin Luther's printers in Wittenberg pirated these. But the author portrait simply isn't there. You might imagine that Luther would have started out doing author portraits, and he does get portraits in later editions of his works. But the the Great Reformation pamphlets uh, on the freedom of a Christian, for example, which are Luther offering his most important message to the world, just have the title and the author's name.
0: So it sounds like this guy's saying, I'm a pretty big deal. (laughs) He is. Who who was Agrippa? Who was Agrippa to say this thing? He
1: was a, a great Renaissance character. He tried being a soldier. He tried being a teacher. He was a philosopher. He traveled in Italy and elsewhere. He learned languages. And what he had gradually compiled was a kind of summa of the Erudite efforts at understanding and manipulating the cosmos that other learned magi had been working on for uh, quite a while before him, and especially intensively in the last 50 years or so. Uh, he's uh, uh, He was an engineer, and he worked on machines for people and consulted on mills and other kinds of standard machines. Uh, He was a satirist. He wrote a book on the uselessness of the arts and sciences, which uh, just goes uh, discipline by discipline, showing that none of them work and none of them can live up to their promises. Finally, he wrote this massive synthetic work, which really became the desk reference for uh, magicians in the same way that there's a desk reference for, uh, for psychological
0: disorders. Now, you and I are taking this book seriously. You've written a whole book about this genre of, of writing, but, but should we take it seriously? It's a book about magic. We don't believe in magic except insofar as people perform card tricks.
1: Well, I think we do believe in magic to a greater extent than we like to admit. Uh, Just think about Silicon Valley. The, The great creators in Silicon Valley, some of them are doing, apparently, magical things with technology and astonishing us. Some of them are claiming that they're able to do magical things with technology when they actually can't and sometimes end up going to prison. And most fascinatingly, Elizabeth Holmes... Promised that she could provide desktop printer sized uh, blood analysis machines. She did not have the technology, but others have actually created it um, since her company went down in flames. And in that way, what was magic, something that couldn't be done by rational means known at the time, has turned into science and technology.
0: I'm reminded of the line by the famous science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke. He once said, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: I certainly remember my first PC. You know, it might as well have been magic for all my understanding of how it worked. You know, and and I, I also remember the wonderful contempt of the people who knew how to use them uh, in those days. Of course, now we have infinitely more powerful things. So I do think that there's an element of magic remains in the realm of technology, uh, and has remained there since the Renaissance in the, the the kinds of claims that we make for it. I think we love to be fooled and entertained by tricks. My Magic was partly about that. And above all, I think we would love it if we could believe that there is a a logic to the universe that there's a way in which the whole universe is connected, part of a magnificent hierarchical design, uh, inhabited by spirits to whom you can speak and whom you can ask for favors. I mean, it's just a wonderful, rich picture of the world. Now, you know, if you're going to compare Agrippa with Copernicus, Copernicus obviously looks a lot better now. Because he was basically attempting to provide just models of planetary motion unaccompanied by an interpretation of what they might mean, for example. Or whether they were accompanied by spirits or whether they affected life on Earth. Um, which um, he almost certainly believed, um, given when he lived and uh, some of the other evidence about him. But you know, his book, in a way, clearly stands at the beginning of a story which um, has culminated to date with modern astrophysics. And Agrippa's book stands at the beginning of a story, which I think culminates in romanticism and 19th-century occultism and uh, the work of writers like Yeats and others who still were fascinated by it centuries later. That's that's a different kind of a story. Um, I think it's a it's a pretty rich one, but you know, I it's not a a story that is going to. uh, It's not a story of the the winning contenders for. as hypotheses that explain how the universe operates.
0: Do we need magic to get to science? In other words, do we have to have astrology so we can get to astronomy and astrophysics? Do we need alchemy so that we can have chemistry?
1: Absolutely. And alchemy is a bit of an outlier because alchemy, as great scholars William Newman at Indiana University and uh, Lawrence Principe at Johns Hopkins have shown, was basically a metallic crystalline chemistry. Everything was cloaked in disguised names and written up in poetry, but they've been able to reconstruct endless alchemical procedures and re- and reenact them. Um, uh, Professor. Principe does amazing things in the fireplace of his townhouse in Baltimore with no more technology than 16th or 17th century alchemists had. And that's why alchemy still fascinated Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, others whom we recognize as major figures in what we used to call the rise of modern science. Um, they they, They knew that alchemy was actually an effective body of techniques even if it was tricky to get at them. Astrology, by contrast, does not seem to me to be an effective body of techniques. Uh, as early as the um, middle of the 16th century, the great historian Francesco Guicciardini, friend of Machiavelli's, uh, was saying the only reason people believe in astrology is that they only remember the predictions that come true, uh, a very accurate diagnosis of confirmation bias, which we still have. So, I I don't think, but what we, we, the reason we needed astrology for astronomy is that astronomy is hard, it's really boring and difficult to collect the data, particularly in 16th and 17th century conditions, and it was the promise that astrology held out of applying astronomy that really um, kept people at it. And I think that had been true since the beginnings of astronomy in the ancient Near East, uh, when it also accompanied uh, serious efforts to predict the futures of states and, and monarchs astrologically, and uh, would continue down deep into the 17th and, in many places, 18th centuries. So, yeah, you know, I think... We, we needed alchemy to get to chemistry because alchemy really did, in part, mutate into chemistry. We needed astrology to get astronomy because you needed a reason to do astronomy, and astrology provided that. So, these are highly significant
0: disciplines in their different ways. So, this book by Agrippa is called On Occult Philosophy. What is the occult? I have a notion of what it is, but what did he mean by the occult? He was thinking
1: of hidden powers. Now, it had been already argued by scholastic philosophers in the Middle Ages, good Christian theologians, that you could do one form of magic without sinning, which they called natural magic. And that was magic that you did using the hidden powers of plants and animals and stones uh, to accomplish things which most people didn't know were possible. And so, in the first instance, occult just means hidden. So, when Agrippa tells you that little red toads have a little bone in their left side, and if you put it in uh, cold water, it becomes hot. And they have a little bone in their right side, and if you put it in hot water, it becomes cold, and you can never heat it again. Um, that's an example of occult powers. You have to, There's nothing unnatural about them. They're not diabolical. They're natural. But most people don't know about them, and they're not obvious from any anything about the toad so they are a form of knowledge which you have to gain basically by trying things out and watching animals you know if you're going to learn about the effects of various uh, of various plants the pharmacological effects you can learn those by watching what happens when animals use them to heal themselves from burns or wounds or snake bites but in in every case you're looking at occult powers hidden powers But for Agrippa, that's only the basic stage of hidden powers. There are many other kinds of hidden powers in the universe. So there are the rays which come down from the planets and the stars to the Earth, and which have impact on the Earth depending on the angles at which they meet one another. So if planets are 180 degrees apart at a given, they affect one another differently than if they're 90 degrees apart or if they're together in conjunction. And that's the body of thought which is astrological and it's hugely developed and very systematic. There are angels and devils in the universe um, and also lesser creatures that are more than natural but not really frightening and supernatural. Many of them live down here, kind of in the atmosphere. And they have powers and You may be able to communicate with them. There you're getting into areas which are really dangerous. If you're communicating to, um, angelic or demonic beings, that obviously is also using hidden powers, but there you're, you're moving into an area where you may be, uh, doing something that is seriously unlawful and putting yourself in, and you may also be putting your soul in serious danger as Faust does in the various versions of the Faust story. Uh, And then there are the hidden powers of, for example, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the Hebrew language. So, the names of angels in Hebrew have power. Amulets with the right designs on them have power. And all of these things are in one or another way occult. And what Agrippa's book did really for the first time was to just bring a vast number of these different forms of occult force together, lay them out systematically, and give a kind of taxonomy of them. And it's just, the book's incredibly rich with examples. Um, though Rabelais would not have been, uh, I think, a, a favorable reader of this, sometimes it reminds you of Rabelais just in the accumulation of names and facts that goes on and on and on.
0: You have a line in your new book, Magus, The Art of Magic from Faustus to Agrippa, when you're introducing This work, you say, quote, reading the book resembled walking through a vast princely chamber of wonders or a grand apothecary shop, ceilings, walls, shelves hung with strange and thrilling creatures, unquote.
1: That's exactly the feeling. Uh, Just Amongst birds, those are Saturnine, which have long necks and harsh voices, cranes, ostriches, and peacocks. Also, the screech owl, the horn owl, the bat, the lapwing, the crow, and the quail, which is the most envious bird of all. This is a message from our friends at
0: American Habits from the State Policy Network. We, the people, Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down and American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Where did he get his ideas from? If this, is, if this is an encyclopedic work on occult philosophy, it synthesizes all kinds of ideas. Where, where is he getting this stuff from? It's a
1: mix. Uh, a lot of it comes from the Elder Pliny's Natural History, which is a huge compendium of information on all sort, most areas of nature, which had come down in pretty good shape from ancient Rome and which had been printed many times. Some of them come from medieval compendia, which had been circulating for a shorter period. Um, some of them come from very up-to-date books, so uh, Agrippa derived his information about Hebrew, about the the names of angels and Hebrew and other names of power, from the work of Johannes Reuchlin, who was a very great German scholar, a contemporary of his, one of the first Christians really to master Hebrew, and who was fascinated by the Kabbalah and other forms of Jewish spirituality and magic and wrote about them. So he's drawing on a vast range of sources, chronologically vast and culturally quite wide-ranging. Much of it is from Latin translations of work written in the Islamic world, uh, but written sometimes by Jews or by Persians as well as by Arabs. Um, so, it's just enormously complex. And a wonderful Italian scholar, Perona Compagni, happily did a critical edition of it and identified not all, but a vast number of these sources, which makes trying to analyze the way he works much simpler than it ever was before when we had to use early
0: editions. Natural History by Pliny the Elder was was episode number 116 in this podcast series for those who want to hear more about this source text for On Occult Philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Tony, what was the reception like with this book? So it comes out, a lot of people are reading, it's influential, it's also controversial. Yeah. His
1: publisher is driven out of Cologne and out of the business, for example. From the start, there is controversy, and from the start, there are people who denounce it. I mean, he he actually puts in a kind of apology at the end where he says, no, no, actually, none of this stuff, none of this elaborate magical stuff works. Don't take this too seriously, but I don't think anyone took that too seriously. You know, So he was clearly conscious that you could get into uh, real difficulties for saying at least some of these things. But people read it with great interest and respect. And I used a particular book, which I found in a, a great German library, the Herzog August Bibliothek, the Duke Albert Library in a small town called Wolfenbüttel, which was uh, the capital of a small German state, ruled by bibliophiles. And they put together a magnificent library. Leibniz was the librarian later on for a while and this copy belonged to a Benedictine named Heinrich Duden and he goes through the whole book responding to it in the margins and so when Agrippa talks about a kind of bat signal, a method for projecting words onto the face of the moon, um, Duden says yeah I saw this done in 1546 and over <laughs> and over again Duden responds, sometimes he'll say something is dangerous, Something. sometimes he'll say gosh that's really interesting Uh, Sometimes he'll say, yes, you can see this in England. And he gives me, uh, he he is, I think, a a learned man, uh, not known to have been a a practicing magician himself, but a reforming Benedictine who clearly takes this book extremely seriously and sees it as erudite, as giving guidance to important realms of knowledge. And that gave me more confidence that that it, it was reasonable to take the book that way. Magi people like John Dee, Queen Elizabeth's astrologer, used the book constantly over and over and over again. So, and it remains in use into the 17th and even 18th centuries by people who are trying to practice magic in this learned form. So, it it gets uh, it gets quite a lot of response from the very beginning. People know it's there. People refer to it, and people are nervous about it.
0: The word magi, of course, the plural of, of magus, but the word magi makes me think of the Bible and the nativity story and the gospel of Matthew. Is this a helpful connection to make? It is. The Magi were
1: often argued, uh, Miss Marsilio Ficino is one of my other characters, argues that the Magi used astrology to learn about the coming of an infant king and to find out where he was, and that's what the story of the Star of the Magi is about. That they were, they were literally following a star using astrological techniques. There's much discussion of what, just what sort of magician the three magi were, uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries. So yes, they are, that's an instance of magicians in the Bible who, unlike the Egyptian magicians, for example, who have their contests with Moses, um, seem to be approved of by the biblical narrative. And that's one of the ways in which magic had a large, a fair amount of cultural support. Uh, there were also, um, you know, there are other passages in in the Bible which do seem to suggest that magicians can have certain powers there are classical texts that um seem uh to that suggest that magic is very much worth study particularly the the golden ass of apuleius uh so there there's there's a, a fair amount of cultural matrix uh into which magic fits pretty neatly in the 15th and 16th centuries
0: in authoritative texts Your new book on all this, Magus, The Art of Magic from Faustus to Agrippa, mentions two people in its subtitle. We have focused on Cornelius Agrippa, but we've also mentioned briefly Faustus. He starts off your book. Who was Faustus?
1: Faustus was a disreputable magus, but still someone who clearly belongs in the same world. He was wandering around middle the middle of Germany in the 1520s and 1530s. He met the leaders of the Reformation in Wittenberg, especially Philip Melanchthon. He uh, met uh, Trithemius, who was still going until, I think, 1518, uh, and he had studied at the University of Heidelberg. He practiced astrology um, rather badly. I mean, he made really bad technical errors. He made predictions. He offered to carry out magical acts for people. My favorite thing that he does is that he appears at a university and offers to give lectures on the classics, and he brings back all the characters from Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Uh, And what I take him to be doing, one of the things Magi were interested in was projecting images. Uh, Not quite yet with a magic lantern, but uh, just projecting images with a candle and uh, a a shape. And I think he was projecting images on a blanket or curtain, and he had a confederate moving the curtain to make it look as if the images projected on them were moving, which is a good kind of early modern theatrical technology. (laughs) and so he had he had hector he had priam he had achilles and finally he brought on the cyclops and when the students start yelling the cyclops makes a noise and threatens them and and they run away uh and that's that's really learned magic it's learned magic when what the magician does is to bring back not just anybody from the underworld but classical heroes so
0: Faustus was an actual historical person. When we think of him today, when we think of him at all, he's a character in literature, isn't he? Like, like the play by Christopher Marlowe or, or the play by, by Goethe.
1: And he became a character in literature. People told stories about him, which proliferated. Then there was a book published in the 1580s, which sort of uh, put his many of his adventures together. And then, of course, uh, he inspired two great writers, Marlowe and and centuries later, Goethe, to write these extraordinary plays. We like history now. There's a cliche that certain things are good to think with. You know, might say astrology is good to think with because it helps you understand a very hierarchical cosmos and what it's like to live in a hierarchical cosmos. And it seems that the stories about Faustus were good to play with if you were a a writer. And both Marlowe and Goethe imagine parts of the story. They use the both use the stories, but they also imagine things that are entirely novel and their own. The story just inspires a very, very rich kind of writing. My my own favorite part of this is that Faustus himself um, was supposed, there are stories of his being taken away by devils and, and so on, as you might expect. But there isn't the long story of Mephistopheles, the devil who tempts him that Marlowe—that it comes up in Marlowe. And uh, it's in Marlowe, I think, that you first get the idea that Mephistopheles might be a sympathetic villain in the way that Shylock is when he gives his speech about being a Jew. As Mephistopheles, after all, warns Faust that he's in hell. Mephistopheles is in hell, and that Faustus will join him there if he sells his soul and he's terrified at the fate that awaits faustus now he doesn't stay sympathetic but uh, there is this moment of sympathy and that's really i think not from the faust story but from marlowe's own wonderful
0: imagination you're a distinguished scholar you've written many books on lots of different topics how did you become interested in this topic these these magicians from from the renaissance period
1: Well, the Renaissance has always been the main period I work on, and uh, I studied when I was very young, in the early 70s, at the Warburg Institute in London, which was a great center of Renaissance scholarship. It had been founded in Hamburg by Abi Warburg, who was a a very wealthy and brilliant Jewish art historian and cultural historian, and his interests included magic and astrology, uh, and not just in the West and not just in the Renaissance and he built a great research library. And the library was slipped out of Hamburg in the 30s and brought to London. And it became the core of an institute of the University of London. And there were great scholars there studying magic and astrology. I was there to do other things, but Francis Yates, who was a wonderful, wonderfully imaginative brilliant historian, D.P. Walker, who was a, a much more sober but also very brilliant historian. They were working on, on these topics already when I got to the Warburg Institute. Sir Keith Thomas, great Oxford historian, had just published a book called Religion and the Decline of Magic. So these topics were very big when I was young, and then later there was the rise of this new historiography of alchemy, which, as I, I say in my book, I don't think is quite the same story as mine, but it's closely related to it, and there are wonderful treatments of it. So I've always been interested, and I grew gradually began to think that what I could do in a reasonable space was the sort of story of how this body of learned magic sort of Pulls together and coalesces into the form in which uh, Agrippa uh, canonizes it in on occult philosophy. Uh, to do more than that would have required writing an enormous book, uh, and I thought I would, I was going to try to write something that was short enough that someone might conceivably read it. Uh, historians are optimists, you know, about their books, <laughs> and so we always,
0: we always cherish these hopes. One final question: We, of course, live in a world awash in computers and biotechnology and artificial intelligence and more, what can these figures from the past, these magicians from the past, teach us today? Is there some kind of lesson in their stories for us now?
1: I think there are a few. One that I, I think matters in ways that I can't be terribly precise about is that they teach us to wonder at the world. And I think it's very easy to lose your sense of wonder. The more that one's nose is buried in a screen all day and all night, and one is, uh, you know, one is desperately doom scrolling, ever news about this or that, it's easy to forget the idea that the universe is a a kind of labyrinth of wonders, even if we don't understand it the same way that these people did. I think it is fascinating to see. From this, the flourishing of this kind of magic, you really get a sense of the nature of Christian, particularly Catholic practices at the same period. And one of the things I try to show in my book is that if you study the way magicians imagine things to be alive and embodied and powerful, then the cult of relics, which was so widespread in my period, becomes much easier to understand. And on the other hand, Understanding that people took long pilgrimages to see and contemplate, and if they could pay extra, touch relics helps you to understand their fascination with other kinds of things that had power. So I think it, I think it's just really it. it magic helps us see our way into this world and it helps us see period concerns that it's easy to forget about now when you if you just read say machiavelli or machiavelli and guicciardini it's easy to imagine that early modern people were living in a rather modern universe with matter in motion and forces and not much else but you know if you then think well Machiavelli is actually um, is a wonderful scholar at Chicago Ada Palmer has shown he's the only person uh, by his time who reads Lucretius's poem about the universe who's interested in Lucretius's atomic philosophy of nature they're very unusual people they're There are a lot more astrologers and alchemists and natural magicians than there are followers of Lucretius. So, for all these reasons, I found this fascinating. It helped me to just see my way into a world that I, I wanted to understand better. And I think it helps me see that some of the other people I study who are famous as scholars, historians, philologists, probably also shared these beliefs. I, I wrote two enormous books on a great scholar called Joseph Scaliger, who is usually seen as a highly rational Genevan Calvinist with a strict law universe. But he tells his students a story of having been uh, having been yes, advised And almost seduced into going into a dangerous bog by a a man whose skin was black and who then disappeared. And when you read that, you suddenly realize, oh, some of the time he was living in Agrippa's universe, too, with spirits and conversations with them. And, uh, And it's by... By taking Agrippa seriously, I understand Scaliger a little better than I did before. So, those are the reasons. There's, I don't think there's any application. I don't think uh, Hillsdale or indeed Princeton is going to be giving courses soon in uh, in the engineering school and applied magic. You know, even if we may have a Quidditch team or two but uh, I do think that you learn a lot about the past. You learn uh, a lot about both human gullibility and the human willingness to suspend disbelief and be convinced. You learn, I think, a, a bit about how Silicon Valley functions as it does. You know, all, of that is, uh, all of that is worthwhile. And I'd say the final thing that is most unexpected, the thing I did not expect when I started working on this, was that Agrippa was also an engineer and a tremendous enthusiast for machinery and the power of machinery the power of human effort to transform the face of the earth uh, that I had I had always thought I think most people did of that as a very different part of the early modern intellectual forest but I think it it's really true that the magicians with their belief in power over nature really helped to spread the idea that there are other forms of power over nature some of which uh, still exist and of course you know, we now see their dark side in a way that
0: the Magi didn't. Anthony Grafton, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about On Occult Philosophy by Cornelius Agrippa. Thank you so much for having me. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Please send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.